Good morning. Remember me? Dan? Bob, right? Let's pray. God, you are good, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Again, we are just um, just uh, excited, first and foremost, to be, uh, to be your son, to be one who is redeemed, um, to be uh, possessed fully and wholly by you. And uh, God, I thank you that that's our anthem, that we are yours and that you are ours. So together, uh, as a body of believers, God, we desire to be attentive to your word, be attentive to whatever it is that your spirit wants to do in us through the proclamation of your word. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified. I pray that we'd be edified. God, I pray for, um, yeah, just grateful to be here, and I uh, pray that you'd be honored and glorified. And uh, I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. So my name is uh, Dan Hardy. I am one of the pastors here. I serve alongside of John Kepinger and Jake Pence, and I have not uh, been in this spot for eight weeks. Uh, actually, this is it'd be nine weeks, and um, and we've taken a long vacation. We have not taken a vacation at all. Um, we've been busy with other things, um, but man, have I just missed like seeing you all from this vantage point. Um, I was at Living Water Fellowship, a church that we had the pleasure uh, of adopting um, uh, back on June 1st. We adopted. I preached there two weeks the last eight, and then I also had the opportunity to preach at Applewood Baptist um, down in Denver as well. But I'm just really glad to be back here and with you all. Um, I want to introduce somebody that didn't ask to be introduced. I didn't know he was coming or his wife was coming, but he's a, he's a really good friend of mine. Um, he is a lead pastor of our church in Alt, Colorado, just a little bit north and east of here. His name is Mark Hotel, and his wife is Stephanie, and uh, there's him right there. Welcome, Mark, Stephanie. Love you guys. And they're on a, um, thanks, brother. They're not on a sabbatical. They're on a furlough um, from, uh, from ministry, although you really never take a sabbatical from ministry, correct? Just furlough. Um, so glad to have you guys with us. Um, if you are new with us here today, we typically teach through books of the Bible. And we, we do that so that we can get a, a, uh, a fuller understanding of God's uh, progressive revelation of the salvation through Jesus Christ. We do it also to, because uh, there's guardrails when you teach through a book. Um, topical sermons are hard, and they are potentially dangerous, because it's really easy to not just, to not pull out the truth from Scripture, but to actually look for truth out of context that uh, somehow supports our view. Um, with that said, uh, we are doing a three-week topical sermon series on stewardship. Um, um, and we've titled the sermon, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. Um, and today we're going to talk about the stewardship of time. Next week, the stewardship of our gifts and talents that God has so graciously given us. And then the, on the um, uh, 3rd, 10th, 17th, we'll be doing um, stewardship of treasure. And then on the 24th, we'll be back into a book. We'll be teaching through the book of Hebrews uh, which we're really excited about that. We had a preaching collective um, yesterday morning. There were seven of us there where we were just uh, talking about um, key words, the theme, the context. Uh, we talked about why, does, why do we need the book of Hebrews today, and I think you're going to be uh, blessed by that. In the meantime, we have work to do. Um, we are going to be walking through this short sermon series um, on stewardship. And the reason that we decided on stewardship of all the topics out there 
is that it's a reminder to us that the earth and everything in the earth belongs to not you and not me, but belongs to the Lord. The Father of good gifts uh, uh, gives good gifts for us to enjoy, to steward for his glory and for the good of other people. These good gifts that he gives are not ours. Our kids aren't our own. Our time's not our own. Our talents are not our own. Our, our treasure's not our own. Um, however, uh, he's given us these gifts to enjoy and to be used for his glory and the benefit of others. Um, a stewardship mentality should guide our life. Now, I don't think we think about stewardship enough. I know we think about it sometimes in the context of money. So the title of this sermon series is The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And I stole that. I stole it from A.W. Tozer in his book called Pursuit of God, uh, Chapter 2. And I can't think of a better title for stewardship than the blessedness of possessing nothing because there is actually great freedom in understanding and realizing that we don't own anything. We're, we're simply managers. We're caretakers. We're fiduciaries, if you will, of the things that God has entrusted us with. Um, Nancy and I have, have, have explored this, have experienced this stewardship concept with our grandkids. Uh, we've got six grandkids that live locally. We've got two grand dogs. Um, we have one um, uh, two-year-old grandchild and two grand dogs that really um, like emulate one another, like they, they have the same activities, ate the same food at times. Um, but there's a blessedness in knowing that we are ultimately... There's a blessedness in knowing that they're ultimately not our responsibility. Um, when they're with us, um, our responsibility is to feed them, keep them alive, and send them back home. And, and enjoy them. That's, that's really, really it. Um, my wife has a, a job description of, of also um, changing their diaper. Um, I don't do that. Um, if they were with me, they would stay with me. I would keep them alive. I would enjoy them, I'd feed them, and I'd send them back after three days with, like, massive poopy diapers. It's not what I do. I do that with my kids. I digress. Most of us live our lives as owners. We live like our time, our talent, and our treasure are ours to do with what we please. And it's not. This is untrue, and I think it's unbiblical, and I think we need a reset and a biblical challenge in order to order our lives in such a way that brings glory to the one who gives everything to enjoy. When we truly live and act inside the reality that God owns everything, we will find more joy. God will receive more glory. And the people that we know will benefit, actually. Today we're going to focus on the gift of time, borrowed time. I titled the sermon, Living on Borrowed Time. Every day is a gift given by the good and great timekeeper to be stewarded for his glory, the good of others, and our own joy. Today we're going to see that, that purpose should drive our plan, that God's purpose for our lives should drive the way that we uh, spend and invest our time. God's purposes, or God's will, if, you, uh, if I might, should drive the way we invest our limited time. So what is stewardship? This is what Webster defines stewardship as. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. I don't actually think, I don't think that definition is complete. So I rewrote it. And I'm going to go ahead and send it into Webster for their consideration. Uh, stewardship is being entrusted with the 
care or management of something or someone that belongs to another. We can't talk about stewardship without the reality that what we're managing belongs to another. It's not ours. In order to rightly steward something or someone, we need to do the following. We need to recognize that we are managers and not owners. We need to understand the nature of that which we are stewarding, the nature of time, of money, of our talent. We need to understand the expectations of the owner. We need to understand the expectations of the one who has entrusted us to manage or care for that asset, if you will. Another word for steward is fiduciary. I don't know if, you're, if that's a word that's familiar to you. Um, my time in the investment business, I spent 20 years as an investment consultant, and I managed a lot of retirement plans, and there is a, um, there's a governing organization called ERISA, the Employee, Employee Retirement Investment Security Act, E-R-I-S-A. It is crazy that I can remember that because I can't even remember, like, my grandkids' names. Um, but, but what that is is it says that, that, that managing retirement assets, that you have a, re, a fiduciary responsibility. A fiduciary is someone who manages property or money on the behalf of someone else. And the law requires that a fiduciary manage the person's assets for their benefit, for the client's benefit, and not for the fiduciary's benefit. A fiduciary must prioritize their client's interests over their own. And what else, is a, what, what else does a wise fiduciary do? They understand the goals of the client. I'm not, I wasn't going to manage the money of somebody that's 20 the same way that I would manage the money of somebody that's 65. So it was important for me to understand the client's mission or goals and then aim for that target. In biblical terms, Charles Bugg, B-U-G-G, defines stewardship in the Holman Bible Dictionary as the following. Utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. I don't think that's complete either. Here's what I would say. Managing and utilizing all of, all of God's resources to provide glory to God for the good of humanity and for the joy of the manager. I think we need to have for the joy of the manager in that. Because there's great joy in understanding that we own nothing. We don't own anything. It all belongs to the Lord, and he has graciously given us all things for our enjoyment to hold loosely to, not tightly to. The Bible doesn't have a lot to say about stewardship explicitly, but it's implicit through every page of the Bible. The reality is that all we have and all we are belongs to another, to God. The psalmist says in Psalm 24.1, and Paul quotes his psalm in 1 Corinthians 10.26, he says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He says something similar in Psalm 89.11, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. I started thinking, where else can I learn about stewardship? And I started thinking about the, the great catechisms. I thought about the Heidelberg Catechism. And the way catechisms are, are written is that there's a question asked, and then they answer that question with a lens through, with a, with a biblical lens. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. And I want you to answer this question um, to yourself. Just take like 10 seconds. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Listen to the answer, that I'm not my own. 
but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I love this. There's stewardship all throughout that. What is your only comfort in life in death? Stewardship is the implicit answer. Christian, you can loosen your grip on all of God's good gifts because the giver of all good gifts will never lose his grip on you. So you can hold them loosely. But sin makes us selfish. Sin makes us selfish and wasteful with all that we have and all that we are. But the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, helps to motivate us to find pleasure in using his good gifts for his glory and for the good of other people. Listen what Paul says about this in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people who believe, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel reminds us that we possess nothing. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness, but we possess nothing. And we are forever possessed by the giver of good gifts. And in this reality, there's great peace and joy and comfort. We can only live as a biblical scholar when we understand the gospel, what God has accomplished through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is more than just a one-way ticket to heaven. It's a message that changes not only a person's destination in eternity, but the human heart and mind today. The gospel transforms more than a person's relationship to God. It also transforms a person's relationship to everything else. The way that we see our so-called possessions. This is significant. Every good and perfect gift from the Lord, including our next breath, belongs to the Lord. And we're stewards of these gifts until God requires them from us when he returns or when he calls us home. So what about time? Stewardship of time. We can count our money. We can take inventory of our gifts and talents, but our time is impossible to calculate. And it's so easy to take for granted, is it not? Have you ever thought about time not being your own? But a gift to steward. How does the owner of your time want you to spend it? If you're a fiduciary of time that belongs to the Lord, how does he want you to spend your time? Our time, unlike money, can't be, it can't be passed on. It can't be multiplied. And each day that goes by reduces the time that we have under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says. The author of Ecclesiastes writes in chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Sounds like a yore. What an encouraging thing to start with. 
Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, if you have an NIV, what your Bible says, um, that meaningless, that vanity is meaningless, life is meaningless. I'm here to say that life, that no life, Christian or non-Christian, is meaningless. That we've been created for a purpose. So vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity does not mean meaningless. It's from the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L, which means vapor or smoke. It's a powerful image for the fleeting nature of life. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Think about it on a cold Colorado morning, it's 28 degrees. You go out to scrape the ice off your car and you breathe and what do you see? You see a vapor, you see a mist that's there for a minute and it's what? It's gone in a matter of seconds. The author is saying, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying that, that everything under the sun is like our breath. It's there for a second, and then it's gone. So we can't cling too tightly to it. And this, this vapor, this hevel of a life is a constant for every human being. And God is the one who is in ultimate control of the length of our vapor, of how long that mist stays on this earth. Faith doesn't make it disappear, and we can't escape it. So we must learn how to live with it. We can, and we can endeavor to, to delay the decay by taking care of our bodies, but we can't stop it. Um, I, listen to a, um, I listen to several podcasts, and one of them I listen to is by a couple pagan guys. And I listen to it not because of their theology, but because of um, they, they have a message of like health, like taking care of your body, and some of that stuff, like I, I enjoy that. But they just interviewed a guy by the name of Sergey Young. And some of you might have heard Sergey Young. He is an investor, but he's also the author of a book called The Science and Technology of Growing Young. It's actually pretty scary. He believes that through science, people will thrive and live up to the age of 200 years um, in the not-so-distant future. By, by causing um, organs to regrow and slowing their decay, and by somehow um, uh, partnering with technology. I, like, I picture, um, what's the guy, Tony Stark, like in that, everybody's going to be walking around in those, in those outfits, you know, like, you know, like, Iron Man, thank you very much. Yeah, instead of, like, giving my, my wife, a, like, a kiss when I come home, like, we're just, like, button helmets when I come home. Like, hi, honey, how you doing? 200 years old. Merrill Lynch. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, wrote this that was connected to this book. I think it was actually an endorsement of, of sorts. And I want to just make a disclaimer. Do not take any investment um, advice from me in any ways other than to, to store your treasures up in heaven. Here's what Merrill Lynch said. One of the biggest investment opportunities over the next decade will be in companies working to delay death. With a market size of already $110 billion, is expected to be worth at least $610 billion by 2025. I've not invested my money in this. I'm not telling you to. Um, and, um, yeah, don't put your money in there and come back and sue the church. I'm not sure what you think of all this research and science, but I know that our time, your time, your children's time, is ultimately in the hands of the Lord, our sovereign and good timekeeper. God's Word tells us to keep an eye on the end of our time. He doesn't say, do everything you can to stay alive. Yes, it's, it's actually good stewardship to eat well and exercise and get good sleep and rest and all that. That's actually good stewardship. 
But he doesn't say do everything you can to try to, to try to live as long as you can. He actually, what he says more often in his word is to keep an eye on the end of our time, is to remember death. Remember the vanity, the hevel, the vapor of life. Listen to what Moses says in Psalm 90.12. So teach us, this is his prayer to the Lord, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This refers to making the most of our days since they are few. Moses writes that there is wisdom in considering the number of our days. You see, when we number our days, it actually empowers us or enables us to faithfully live by the right priorities. David said something similar in Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. What's the heart of these prayers by Moses and David? It's death awareness. This is, is help me walk and enjoy your good gifts, being aware that my days are numbered. In the 16th and 17th century, the Puritans drew from the Psalms that sought to bring a perspective of death into everyday life. If you know anything about the Puritan era, their lifespan was about, uh, their expected lifespan was about half of what our expected lifespan was. And when they, would, when they would go to church, they would walk by a cemetery that was on the grounds of the church. And there was a constant reminder of the brevity of life and the reality of death. Remembering death as an unshakable reality would bring, them, would bring them purposeful living for the glory of God and the joy of others. It's the same with us. Remembering death reminds us of the gift of life under the sun and it reminds us that we will live again. That Jesus conquered the last enemy, and that's death. But this life is fleeting. And forgetting that this life is fleeting and forgetting death is a recipe for selfish ownership living rather than gracious, God-glorifying stewardship. When was the last time you thought about the brevity of life? It might have been last week when we got the news of the, of the res kids in that accident. There's nothing like a close call that reminds us of how short life is. It might have been the loss of a loved one. Whenever someone dies, whether they're old or young, it reminds me of how short my life is and the life is of my loved ones. I would encourage you to take an inventory of the brevity of life today and every day. It's harder to do that when you're young. It's easier to do the older we get. I'm kind of a wacko, you know this, but these things right here, say hello, hello. This guy here, is, uh, he's a fixture in my office. And, um, and skulls, like actually real human skulls, were a fixture in the homes of the Puritans in the 16th and 17th century because they wanted to face death head on. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a downer. It kind of feels depressing. But actually, when we face death head on, when we look at the, that our lives are mortal, it causes us to remember the life and death of Jesus Christ who died for us so that we will never die. 
This life is fleeting. It's temporary. Uh, this is from my office as well. A young lady made this for me. Uh, she spelt it wrong, but I still keep it in there, and I haven't had the heart to tell her uh, that she spelled it wrong. It, it's actually, um, I think it's M-O. I don't even know what the misspelling is, but there's a, there's a letter that's wrong. Um, it means remember death. It's Latin. It's in my office. It's weird. It's good. I go to cemeteries. You know that about me. If you're new here today, um, please come back next Sunday because I'm not that. I mean, not everything's weird about me. Uh, but I go to cemeteries on my day off, and I uh, I do the Rain Man thing. I'm doing math as I walk through it and say, okay, um, 65 years old, 59 years old. Oh, there's a 90 year old, three years old. I came across um, three kids, same last name, that died within um, three months of each other, and I just wept. I just wept because it wasn't. It's not natural that kids would not live that long. But there's something about going to the cemetery that, that enlivens the heart to praise and live our lives for the glory of God because our days are short. And it causes us to live as stewards and not as owners. We have 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year. How much time do you have left? Have you taken inventory? Have you asked the Lord to help you number your days? It's biblical. Like David wouldn't pray that if it's not something that would be beneficial to him. Moses wouldn't pray that. Um, the, if you've ever taken out a life insurance policy, you know there's a mortality table. Like they, they base your monthly premium based on how old you are and how healthy you are. I'm pretty healthy, but I just applied for... Well, I didn't apply for life insurance because they told me it was going to be like $10,000 a month for like, a, like $100 of life insurance. I'd be like, am I that old? It's, they, they base a premium on that. So I've put forth this. I don't know if this is helpful, but I would encourage you to look at it and let it soak in just for a moment. Um, find your age, close to your age on here. I'm, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, age 40. What this is saying is, is that um, if you're age 40, you have already lived 2,080 weeks. And what it's saying is that the average life expectancy for a 40-year-old today, for a male, is 1,924 weeks from their 40th birthday forward. For the female, it's 2,132. I talked to a guy after the last service. I just said, like, how did the, how did the sermon strike you? Like, was, were you encouraged? Did you feel, like, uh, manipulated, beat up? And he goes, man, like, you were talking my language. He says, I've actually got a chart on my wall with the remaining, that has weeks on it. And it, like, like a prisoner in a cell, like, he says, like, I, I knock off another week every week. Every week. I go, like, you are a weirdo. Like, you just took that to a whole different, different level. But it's, I'm, I, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to go there. It's like a prisoner in a cell just marking off the days, but we're not prisoners in a cell. We are prisoners of the, the God Most High who will never let us go, who knows the number of our days, and he wants us to live our days as stewards and not as owners. At the end of Psalm 90, 16 through 17, if you remember uh, Psalm 90, Moses prayed, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Uh, but at the end of that Psalm in verse 16, he says, let our work be shown to... Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see, if we really want to be used by the Lord and enjoy the Lord, we will number our days. We will we'll have our head out of the sand, 
our eyes open, understanding that our days are numbered and that they are held in the palm of the great, sovereign, good, and loving timekeeper. Understanding that everything under the sun is a vapor, and our vapor belongs to the Lord is actually the key that unlocks a life of purpose and enjoyment. Numbering our days helps us make the best use of the time that God allows. Numbering our days enlivens the prayer for the Lord to establish the work of our hands and our plans. Are you making the best use of your time? How do you know you are? I know your life is full. We each have 24 hours, and every minute of it is full of something, full of sleep, full of work, full of play. When I ask people, how you doing? How are things going? What's the most common answer? The most common answer. Busy, maxed, oh, like life. Now, there's truth in that. Now, I said it at the last service. I'll say it here. Like, like, just be honest with me. If, I, if it's been a busy week, month, it's been a busy year, just say it and, and let's pray. But I don't think that's the answer that God wants us to give long-term. <clears throat> you know, something called the, uh, what's it called? The definition of insanity, right? Continue doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Yeah, life is busy. We live in a busy, busy culture. But we have control of that. I feel like, I feel like busyness at, at some level is a badge of honor in our culture. Like if we don't say we're busy, somehow we're, we're lesser than normal. It's an honest answer, but it's also a telling answer. And here's the question I have for you this morning. Is your time, is your schedule being driven by, uh, by man-made purposes and goals or the Lord's purpose for your life? Scheduling your, t- scheduling your time, whether it's today's time, tomorrow's time, uh, your calendar, next year's resolution, um, scheduling your five-year vision, or your retirement should be driven by God's purpose for your life and not your plan for your life. Now, he gives us all kinds of freedom inside of that. But start with his purpose. What is his overarching purpose for, for, um, for the time of our life? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do, not, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. There's so much in life that is competing for our time. So many good things. There's good, there's better, and there's best. And God's plan, God's purposes for your life is always best. And then we have freedom inside of that to do what's better and good. God gives good gifts. But what's evil is replacing and worshiping the gifts and prioritizing the gifts rather than the giver of good gifts and his body. We need to understand what the will of the Lord is in order to make the best use of our time. How do we know the will of the Lord? Where do you start? With the Word. The revealed Word of God. The revealed Word of God. Jonathan Dodson in his book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, talks about three conversions when we're saved. We're converted to Christ. Praise be to God. We're forgiven of our sins. We're united with Christ. He will never... um, um, 
He will never kick us out. Um, he will never leave us nor forsake us. We're converted to Christ. We're also converted to the church. And we're converted to mission. Most of American Christianity operates in and sees the one-third of the gospel. Like I've been saved from the, from the shame and the penalty um, and the power of my sin. And Jesus is my Savior and I am going to be with him forevermore. But the other two-thirds of the gospel were saved to Christian community, to the church, and were saved to mission. The church is referred to as the body of Christ because when we are converted to Christ, we're converted to his body. You see, it's not God's best when, when there are Christians in America that there are, that there's, I think it's now like 60% of America would say that they are Christian. But about 20% of that 60% say that they belong to a local church. How can that be? Dodson writes that many professing Christians worship a bobblehead Jesus because they're disconnected from the body of Christ. At best, for many, for many, church has been reduced to a weekly event. Instead of being in the church, we've fallen into the, the, the mentality of, of, of doing church. We become consumers who see church in the same way that they shop in a mall, picking and choosing from different options. One has good preaching, the other has good music, the other has a good children's ministry, the other has a good youth group. That's best that we, we, that we at best, Worse yet is attending a weekend service sporadically and having no other involvement in the church. The pandemic has wrecked havoc on the church. We've gotten used to watching church from home, or we've completely lost the habit. It's a habit. It's a discipline of going to church on a weekly basis. We started last service, 8.30, we have... Uh, uh, we live cast it on YouTube for people to stay at home and watch it. And I don't think we have many people. I think there's maybe 30, 40 that like tune in. Um, and what I, what I told them who are not listening today is that like we're, we're glad to do that. And, like if you're not able to come, we want to continue like broadcasting it on YouTube um, for your benefit. But if you're able to come and you're just doing it out of convenience, get your tail in here. Get here. Because the, the church isn't just a sermon online. The church is where we sing together. And we worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords together. And we sit under the teaching together. And then we discuss it throughout the week together. We pray for one another in person. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Let us not consider... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God's design for feeding, protecting, and encouraging those that he saved is a local church. Not just this local church. There's lots of good churches in northern Colorado. At Windsor Community Church, we have two primary pillars that we, if this is your church, we ask you to, to prioritize. One is a Sunday gathering. The other is our community groups. 
Our community groups meet throughout the week, and, and they do different things, but it's always word-centered, and it's a place where you can draw encouragement, where you can be spurred on. If, you, if you're not a part of the Sunday gathering and you're not part of a community group, um, man, it's just going to be hard for you to A, feel connected to this church, but B, the enemy's going to have a heyday with you. So whatever whatever's going on in your life, um, make time, prioritize the Sunday gathering and community groups. Prioritize these for God's glory, for your joy, and also for the good of other people. Because God, as we're going to talk about last next week, has given each of you great gifts to edify the church and to make known his glory. We've been saved to church. We've been saved to mission. I'll just touch briefly on that. If your life is spent inside the Christian bubble in every way, like, like all your time is spent with uh, church people, uh, Christian friends, um, uh, in the schooling context of Christians, and you don't have a relationship with non-Christians, um, you're missing God's will for your life. The great commandment in Matthew 28, go. That's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the pastors. It's for all of us. And you don't need to go be a missionary in some, um, some forsaken place. It can be right in the context of your neighborhood and your kids' uh, sports friends and whatnot. But order your life in such a way that you're not just always with Christians. I want to encourage you to consider at a high level what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is that you be involved in a local church. The will of the Lord is that you be known by other people. The will of the Lord that you would live your life somehow on mission. Create a grid to plan your calendar. God's will is that you prioritize belonging to the local church where you can be fed, protected, and encouraged. His will is also that you're involved some way in mission. Yes, you need to work. Yes, your kids' sports are permissible if there's any doubt of where I stood on that. Absolutely. I love kids' sports. Went to one of my granddaughter's games yesterday, and I decided not to go to the second granddaughter's game because we needed to have a sermon today. Yes, your family is your first priority. Yes, we need rest and leisure. That's biblical. But number your days. Remember your time is not your own, and the will of the Lord is for you to prioritize participating consistently in the body life of your church. Buy a new home. Take a different job. Plan your activities with the priority, looking through the lens of being involved in the local church in Christ's mission to serve and seek and to save. Don't be motivated by a bucket list. Don't be motivated by the by I don't want my kids to miss out mentality. Let your time be governed by the will of God. And I'm going to close off with these words from James, and I'm going to read you a poem. James said this in chapter 4. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Knowing what the Lord's will is for our life at a, at a high level will inform the way we steward the precious time he's given us. This place, if this is your church, you're having a conversation with somebody and they say, hey, where do you go to church? And you go, I go to Windsor Community Church. 
If this is your church, you need to be here on Sunday morning. This is to be known. Yes, there's Sundays where we go and we're, we do different things. We go on vacation. I go hunting. I go camping. But it's all planned around this rather than the other way around. This is the most important place to be on Sunday morning. All the other stuff is good and permissible. But where are your priorities? What are you teaching your, your children and your grandchildren about stewardship of time and the difference between good, better, and best? So we need to number our days and rightly order our Christian life for the glory of God, for our joy, and for the good of others. Let me read to you a lengthy poem by C.T. Studd. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a, br a brief few years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, please thee, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let me love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I'll know, I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. God, thank you for this life that you have given us in Christ. And I thank you that this life that you've given us in Christ can never be repossessed, that we belong fully and wholly to you, that we've been given every, uh, every, everything for life and godliness. And God, we thank you for the good gifts that you've given us. We thank you, Father of life, that you've given every good lift every good gift to your children. And God, I pray that you would, for your glory, our joy and the good of others, that you would, you would transform, that you would loosen our grip on our time and our things and our treasure and even our kids, that we would recognize that we are stewards, that we are managers, we're caretakers, we're, we're fiduciaries. So God, help us enjoy all your good gifts. Help us to number our days, to take inventory of the brevity of life. Not so that we would fall into some type of deep despair and depression, but so that we would live our lives by the power of the Spirit, being 
being informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live our every day in submission to you once again for your glory, praise, and honor, for our joy and the good of others. God's people said.